When I was in my early 20s, it was really before I'd encountered um, meditation practice, I started to have very strong openings in the area of love. And I connected really strongly to this experience through relating with people, through relating with nature. And although we haven't talked about it a lot, I know nature is a really important piece for a lot of you of your metta practice. You know, you almost can't go out and look at the hillsides and the deer and the turkeys without getting some connection of loving kindness for this landscape. It was so it was through people, through nature, through art, through music. And it was the most fulfilling thing that I discovered in my life, at least in young adult life. But it wasn't very stable for me. So this, these experiences of love would be very intense, but they'd come and go quite randomly. And I, I didn't know what was behind their changing, uh, their changing nature. So for me, one of the big draws to Dharma practice was I wanted to find out how to stabilize and live more from, from that place. And one of the things I discovered pretty early on is that to have regular access to love, I needed to understand wisdom. And the wisdom was basically about not holding on, not, not clinging. So that was an important piece. And then the other thing that was really important for me was discovering the practice of loving kindness. Because in our tradition, in our lineage, this is the avenue to love. And it's a very reliable one. It's been practiced and undertaken by men and women for 2,500 years, this very kind of practice that, that we're doing here. And it does work. Now you look at somebody like the Dalai Lama and you can tell it works. So it's a great, uh, ground, it's a great ground for our faith in this practice. But one of the other things I, I came to learn is that the practice is not just a straight line to metta. We don't just come in and immediately get there without moving again. But it's best understood, I think, not just as a, like a zip line to that destination, but the practice of metta is really an exploration. And in that exploration, we go around a lot of different mind states that all kind of come together to lead in the direction of loving kindness, but we touch a lot of other places along the way. If we have the idea that only metta is valuable and all these other places are mistakes, then we'll have a lot of problem in our metta practice. But if we understand that metta and all these other points we touch are all really valuable places to learn from, then all of our metta practice makes sense. Then it all becomes workable and it's all part of the unfolding of the Dharma. The terrain that metta wanders around, and it does it better than any other practice I know, is the territory of the heart's response. Or we could say responses. What we're really exploring is how does the heart respond to the changing conditions that life presents us? And as human beings, we have lots of changing conditions. There are beautiful things that happen to us, there are sort of medium things that happen to us, and there are sometimes like disastrous things that happen to us. 
And the heart has kind of different responses, some conditioned, some less conditioned, to all that changing uh, situational landscape of our life. So what we really want to learn about is how is my heart responding? So two things. Number one, I think looking at the metta practice this way opens up a broader view of what we're doing. And it kind of makes it easier to accept all the things that come. Number two, I think it shows that there's a lot of understanding that comes out of this practice. Not only are we retraining the heart to respond in the most beautiful way possible, but we're also learning about how its responses affect us you know, in all the directions that it goes. So there's a lot of insight in this practice. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but sometimes as a metta yogi, I get this inferiority complex with Vipassana yogis. Because, you know, they're a little bit smug. Because they go, well, okay, you're, you're, quote, opening the heart, unquote. But we've got insight. You know, and insight is the real thing. Because that's what's going to liberate us. And you, all you're doing is poking around and feeling a little better. But I want to say that we have a lot of insight, too. And so you can stand up to those Vipassana yogis <laughs> and say you're also on a, on a great path of understanding and, and learning. So the first area that we start to explore is the area of the Brahmaviharas themselves. And that is loving kindness and the other three. This term Brahmavihara is made up of two words. Brahma... Um, refers to something kind of heavenly or divine. It's a pointer to a really refined um, way of being and way of feeling and uh, manner of existence. And the term vihara uh, is meaning a spiritual home. Often a, a monastery or a nunnery is termed a vihara, a place to live that has a spiritual connotation. So we could call this combination Brahma-vihara, we could call it uh, our divine home or heavenly abiding, or sometimes it's called our best home. All these, I think, are, are good translations. So the original uh, teachings of the Buddha in the Pali Suttas describe these Brahma-viharas um, in different ways, but here's a passage that comes again and again from the words of the Buddha, when he says, I will abide pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. And then he repeats this formulation for the other three, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So this is kind of where the journey of exploration is leading, to pervade the whole universe with this mind of loving-kindness that's abundant, exalted, and immeasurable. Immeasurable because it's vast and because it doesn't exclude any beings. You know, it can, it can reach and, and include the whole range of sentient life throughout the universe without hostility and without ill will. This is a beautiful place to be. And because it's so, uh, you might say, 
lofty a vision, we understand that we only reach the kind of the fullness of this state from time to time. You know, it's kind of like a peak experience when we experience the Brahma Viharas in this degree of fullness. So it's not that we expect to be there all the time, but we can start to get a taste for it. And this, the immeasurability expands as we practice more and we move more into that space. In our tradition, we take loving kindness as the foundation for all three, all four Brahma Viharas. In the Mahayana traditions, compassion is more often taken as the foundation. But in our tradition, we see loving kindness as the foundation. And then we understand that when the heart becomes open with the caring of loving kindness, then when it looks on suffering, it just automatically kind of morphs into compassion. So compassion just comes naturally when the open heart of loving kindness sees suffering. Or when that open heart looks on someone's happiness, then automatically what comes out is appreciative joy. We get happy with their happiness. And if the open heart isn't being stimulated in any particular way, then it can kind of rest in the balance of equanimity. Equanimity doesn't mean that there's no feeling, but it means that the mind is balanced and peaceful amid the changing conditions. So first we begin in a simple way in this retreat by exploring this area of loving kindness. And we develop it through these simple phrases. Sally talked about it this morning as saying that in this practice we're really just planting seeds. And I want to emphasize that, that every phrase that we say plants a seed. Because these phrases are expressing an intention. You know, the basic practice is we, we bring someone into our heart and we feel, I hope you're happy. That's, that's all it is. But that is the heart of the metta practice. To hold someone, I hope you're happy. And then we say it different ways. So this, I hope you're happy, is an intention that comes out of, that comes out of our heart and mind you know, toward the other person. And that intention carries power because intention is the root of karma. So what we're doing is planting karmic seeds of these caring and loving intentions moment after moment after moment. And the way that karma works, this develops a force over time. This develops a power. And it results in fruit because karmic actions have fruits. And wholesome intentions bring wholesome fruits. So, exactly when those fruits come, we can't say. And it's just like if you're a gardener and you plant a tomato seed in your garden, can you tell when the tomatoes are going to come? No. You know, you put it in there and you give it the right conditions, right? You give it water and some plant food and some sunshine and hopefully warmth. But if you get too impatient and you go in there and you scrape away all the soil and you try to pull up the little sprout, you're going to rip it out. So we have to be really patient. And we understand that our job as gardeners is to plant the seed, but it's not to tell the plant when to grow. 
Because only nature can do that. And, you know, we remember that a synonym for nature is dharma. So we plant the seed, and dharma provides the growth, provides the fruits. But it will do it at, at its own pace, given whatever the conditions are. So that's why in the metta practice, all we need to take care of is that simple intention. I hope you're happy in, in its different forms. I hope you're happy. If we do that, we've done our job. We planted those seeds moment after moment after moment, and then we can just trust the Dharma to provide the water and the sunlight and the warmth for those seeds to grow. So there was a lovely moment in our uh, interview group, I think it was yesterday, when we were talking about the fact that there's insight in the metta practice, and we were discussing you know, different aspects of how to do the practice. And someone said, from the comments in the group, I'm starting to understand that all we really have to do is say the phrases and take what comes. And I said, that's exactly right. If we could just give that as one simple instruction, we could be done. Just say the phrases and take what comes. That really is the whole of the practice. Of course, we want to refine it a little bit We want to say the phrase and mean it. So it's not just a mantra. You know, a mantra, you say the words, and the words take care of the energy or the vibration. The words do the work. But in the metta practice, we want to say the words and mean them. Because it's the meaning, I hope you're happy, that provides the power of that intention. So the more you can mean the phrase when you say it, the kind of uh, purer or clearer or stronger that intention is. And that intention is the karmic engine of the practice. So that's really what makes this practice work. So all you have to do is sincerely care when you say that phrase. It sounds easy, doesn't it? All I have to do is sincerely care. You know, about 60 times a minute and, you know, 18 hours a day. It gets hard to do it again and again and again. But each time, this is all the practice needs, is that simple intention of caring for ourselves and for someone else. There's no technique that produces the caring. This is why it's kind of um, a creative practice. We have to find the caring And if we find the caring, we found the metta. So it's sort of interesting. It's a a practice where we're asked to basically produce it on the spot. Okay, you want to have metta? Let's see it. You want to have metta? Okay, produce it in this moment. So that's really what we're doing, is we're producing this metta out of our own heart and understanding, moment after moment after moment. That's all it is. That's all we're doing. But that's not so easy. It's easy to do it once. It's not so easy to keep doing it moment after moment after moment. But the more we understand, the easier it gets because we understand we just have to do that and then we let go of the outcome. You know, I think Kamala said that on the first morning. We let go of the outcome in the sense of wanting it to change the person. And I think Sally said something this morning about we let go of the outcome and terms of trying to produce an immediate result. We say that phrase, we mean it, and then we take what comes. 
Because there's a deep trust that the exploration of the heart's response will lead us to greater understanding, greater love, and greater freedom. So we don't mind if we wander. Because everywhere we wander, we're going to learn and we're going to open. It's a slow, it's a slow transformation, but it's happening with each phrase that we can say with sincerity. And the Buddha put it this way, Don't disregard the accumulation of wholesomeness, saying, This will come to nothing. By the gradual falling of raindrops, a jar is filled. So that's what we're doing, filling the jar moment after moment. It's like the image Sally used this morning of the rain falling on the rock and wearing it away. Slowly, slowly, moment by moment, we're changing our hearts. So one of the ways that we change our hearts is normally our intentions run to self-centered motives. I'm sure you've noticed. Normally we're thinking about what can I get from here or how can I prevent fear or threat from arising over there. So instead of those self-centered motivations that activate through our thoughts, we're replacing them with caring thoughts. So this is the first and sort of most straightforward way we purify the mind. We're dropping the self-centered motivations and we're putting in caring motivations. So that starts to change the way we feel, starts to change the way we are. But there's another way that we clean the heart or purify it that I want to talk a little about. Metta practice really acts as a, as a scrubbing technique. It gets in and it goes after those um, old accumulations of hurts and fears and rejections and sorrows and disappointments. And it's kind of interesting the way it does it because it does it through relationship reflections. We reflect on ourselves, our benefactor, friend, other people in our lives, all beings. And through these relationship reflections, a lot of this old accumulation starts to come to the surface. So this is the other part of the exploration. We start to hit the kind of junk that's in the mind and it doesn't feel like loving kindness, but it was um, dislodged by loving kindness. It's kind of like you take a magnet with a certain orientation and you run it up the body and loving kindness has a really strong positive pole. And so as you run that up the body, everything that's not like loving kindness gets drawn to the surface. And I'm sure you've seen this. We turn to ourselves and we wish ourselves well and all the reasons we shouldn't be happy come to the fore. Or we direct our thoughts to the benefactor. I wish you're well. And then some little regret or feeling of hurt comes in response. So this is um, not a wrong direction. This is not a mistake. This is what the metta practice does. This is how it purifies us. In order to clean up these old hurts, we first have to shake them loose. And by shaking them loose and bringing them into the light of awareness, then we have the possibility of releasing them and transforming them. And that's why this practice is so healing, so deeply healing. 
Because eventually it goes through all our relationships and cleans them up. And relationships are mostly where we've gotten hurt. Mostly human beings get wounded through interactions with other human beings. And that's why this relationship-oriented reflection is so powerful and goes so deeply for us. So as we explore and these other reactions come up, these other reactions are also a really integral part of the practice. They're so integral that in the Brahma-vihara system, they're given their own designations. So as you learn the whole map of the Brahma-viharas, they're not just the four divine abodes, but each divine abode has a near enemy and a far enemy. So I want to explain what those are about. So really, the whole map is um, three states for each Brahma-vihara, or 12 in all. And we'll explore all of these as we go through uh, the week together. So with loving-kindness, or let me back up a sec, the near enemy for each of these is a state that looks a lot like the wholesome state, like the Brahma-vihara, but it has basically an unwholesome tinge to it. So it's like an imposter. It's masquerading as a beautiful state, but it's not quite. And then the far enemy is the opposite. And the opposite of a beautiful state is going to be an unwholesome state. So the near enemy for loving-kindness is an affection, some kind of liking, but that's really tinged with desire. And the far enemy is the opposite of loving-kindness. We've said this before, I think. The opposite of goodwill is ill-will or hostility, or you might say generally aversion. So the near enemy is related with desire. The far enemy is related with aversion. Do these sound familiar? Desire and aversion are the first two of the list of the hindrances. And they're the basic deluded movements of mind that we all go through. We're pulled toward the pleasant and we want to push away the unpleasant. This is the reactive mechanism of samsara. This is what keeps us bound. So metta has these as well. The near enemy is the desire force. The far enemy is the aversive force. So they show up through the Brahma-viharas also. But exploring these, again, is exploring this terrain of the heart's responses. And we learn how in relations, the heart responds with some wanting and how the heart responds with some pushing away. So these are the two things I want to talk about now this evening, are these two uh, responses of the near and the far enemies. So the near enemy is, is liking somebody, but there's a, there's a holding on with attachment or desire or wanting with it. And you can see how this works. You go through life and you meet some people that you really like. So there's like this instantaneous feeling of metta with them. You know, you like the way they look, you like the way they dress, you like the way they speak, you like the way they carry themselves, you like the way they think. And in that, there's, there's a lot of metta because there's an appreciation and a, a kind of love for the person's being. But then, because of our conditioning, we go, I want more of that. And so we form a desire or an attachment in relation to that person. 
And that desire attachment is what creates uh, the problem in the relationship. So it's like, you know, metta also has this warmth. And, and love is very uniting. When there's pure love with somebody else, there's a real feeling of union and drawing closer. Well, attraction also has this. Desire has this. And that's why sometimes they're hard to tell apart. So let's just talk a little bit about how this desire force plays out in some of these um, basic relationships. So with the benefactor, if it's somebody that you respect, then what we often want is we want their um, approval or we want their attention or we want their recognition or we want their acceptance. I was meditating um, for a long time, about a six-week retreat, I used one benefactor who was a teacher of mine. And I discovered as I was doing it that my ability to, um, to really open to him suffered from a, a part of this attached feeling. I really appreciated him a lot. I had a lot of pure metta. But I had wanted a friendship with him that wasn't going to happen. Because for him... Uh, we weren't on a peer level. He was my teacher and he saw me as a student. So the friendship wasn't really going to happen, although I would have liked it to. So I had to let go of that in order to just really open to my benefactor and appreciate who he was and all I'd gotten from him. It wasn't that I resented not having that kind of friendship, but it limited my ability to to feel wholly um, and purely loving toward him. So often with the benefactor, that's kind of the dynamic. We want maybe a little more than they're able uh, to give. With a friend, this dynamic comes in often. And sometimes it's one side of the friendship where there's more desire and the other side where there's less. So we may be the one who's wanting more closeness, more contact, more intimacy, more connection. And we feel the friend, after a while, start to pull away because they, they don't want it quite as close. And, you know, it comes up in little things like, oh, I invited them for dinner, but they never invited me back. You know, or I called them last week and they never returned my call. And so we start feeling insecure and not knowing where we stand. And then we start to withdraw. And sometimes... Um, you know, friendships go that direction where they just part because there's not kind of the mutuality of where the people are heading. But it's also easy to get resentful. If we're in the situation of wanting more contact and we're feeling rejected, it's also easy to get resentful if we feel the other person is too needy in relation to us. So the resentment can come from either side. And sometimes friendships end because of that imbalance. Um, And sometimes that's the right thing. But it's really unfortunate if the friendly feelings end because of some resentment or frustration. Because it's quite possible to have a friend who's distant and not exactly the friendship you want, but you could still have a lot of metta to that person. But often what we find is we go through our friend meditation, which we'll start tomorrow morning, is some of these old disappointments and hurts or rejections or feeling the other person was too needy, have really clouded our ability to feel the metta. So as we reflect on our friend and their happiness and their safety and their 
health and their ease, all these things come to light. And we can see how maybe we've been obstructed in our metta for them by these old feelings. So once they come to light, there's a possibility of releasing them. Forgiveness is a really powerful ally, especially in the friend relationship. So that's why we wanted to introduce it early so that you could begin to work with it, not just for yourself, but also when the friend is introduced tomorrow. Often we find there's a lot of forgiving that has to take place between even um, our closest friends, or sometimes especially with our closest friends. Another place where there's a lot of desire, of course, is in our intimate relationships. Romantic love has this attractive quality that has a very strong component of desire or wanting. There's usually some desire for companionship, some um, sexual desire, some desire for appreciation and affection, uh, desire for sharing of, of mutual interests, all the kind of friend dynamics. But you can especially see with romantic love, if the desire isn't getting fulfilled, how quickly the love can turn into aversion. And a lot of um, romantic relationships become very conflicted because one partner feels they're not getting their desires satisfied. And then it can become um, even violent and uh, abusive because of the frustration of the desire component. Often romantic love starts with a big component of metta and appreciation. But if this other side of uh, desire isn't seen, then it can really, um, that part can cause, can cause problems. I've often thought that there should be a romantic um, love song. You know, a lot of pop songs are about this whole dynamic. And there should be a pop song that says something like, um, I want you, I need you, I love you, and I'll kill you if I can't have you. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the gist of it, isn't it? You know, I love you until I hate you. And uh, that's why often we don't use the word love when we're talking about metta, because it gets mixed up with this culture's idea of romantic love. Um, sometimes it's not so easy to tell the difference between metta and uh, romantic love or this desire component. But just a couple of things to reflect on. Romantic love is usually um, limited to just a few people. Like if you look around this group, you know, which is about 100 people, the number of people that you might want to fall in love with is probably pretty small. So romantic love and this desire force is usually very limited. But metta is meant to be universal. You know, and I expect you will feel at the end of this retreat that you could feel metta toward everybody here. Even if there are difficult people here, I expect you will feel metta for them over the course of the week together. So far, I haven't seen many difficult people, which is lovely. I mean, this seems like a really nice group, and I hope you'll find metta for all of you really easily, because that's the way this group feels to me. And the other thing about um, romantic love is that it's more focused on my desires and less concerned with the other's actual well-being. So another difference with, with metta. So most intimate relationships have a mix of metta and um, desire, and it's why we don't usually use our romantic partners 
as our friend. When we talk about the friend category tomorrow, I'll recommend that you pick somebody who's not a romantic partner for you. And the reason for that is that it's hard to tease out these two strands in our romantic relationship right away. But if you pick somebody who's a friend where there's not a romantic attraction, then the the metta is usually uh, purer or a little cleaner. And then it's easy to tell the difference. And when you move to a romantic partner, then you can feel how it changes. So that's our recommendation for um, an intensive retreat generally. Over time, we really refine this relationship to our partner. Uh, Sally and I have been together now for, it's getting close to 30 years. I think it's 28. And in the beginning, uh, I had a lot of desire mixed in with my uh, affection for her. And it continued. And, you know, we would fight about my desires. I'm sorry to say, but I was a young practitioner then and I didn't know any better. And then I started reading um, books about the Bodhisattva path. And I got very inspired. Uh, Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And I took the Bodhisattva vows with one of my teachers. And I was reflecting a lot on becoming free so that I could help all beings come out of suffering. So I had this very um, inspired motivation to help all sentient beings come through their own suffering and awaken. So I'd be doing these reflections, and then I'd be thinking about what I needed from Sally. And I thought, wait, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to save all beings, but I need her to save me first. So I really started looking at that question of need. And whether they're, for a Buddhist practitioner, I don't want to say anything about um, people in general, but for a Buddhist practitioner, whether the idea of need in terms of emotional need from a relationship partner, can really be justified. And that's been my um, reflection and direction since I started considering that the bodhisattva ideal, and I argue less now, (laughs) I'm happy to say. So another form of attachment that comes out of the metta practice is we can want the object of our metta practice to be a certain way. And, you know, we'll be wishing them well, and we'd think, well, you know, you'd really be a lot happier if you changed this. Or, I would really like you better if you changed this. And maybe we even want to make a meta phrase that kind of encourages them, you know, to be a better person, the way we would see them being a better person. So I was teaching loving kindness once in a, a weekend retreat, And a woman raised her hand and said that as her benefactor, she was using her son, who was currently in college and living at home. And she said she got to the line that said, may you live with ease. And she said, wait, he's living with way too much ease already. I wish he'd get up earlier and do his homework on time and clean up after himself. This is like way too easy. So she wanted to change her metaphrase to... Um, may you develop more discipline and have more backbone. <laughs> so, I said that that might not quite have the quality of acceptance that loving kindness is meant to bring about. So I encouraged her to stay with the standard phrase and just reflect on it. 
a little more. Another form of attachment or desire is that we get attached to the experiences that we have in the metta meditation. It is a beautiful practice, and it opens us at times to really beautiful states and kind of peak experiences, both of loving kindness and of concentration. And then there can be a strong desire to have those again. So this came clear to me. I was doing a a long metta retreat, and I was about 10 days in, and the metta and the concentration were both developing really nicely, and I was really enjoying the, the retreat. And then something came from the outside, and it shook it up. It threw me off track and broke the concentration, broke the metta, and I felt like I was starting over. But I really wanted to get back to where I was, so I worked really hard. And I put a lot of pressure on myself, and I said the phrases as regularly as I could, and I tried really hard to see the person and direct the phrase to them on the out-breath. But I was tying myself up in knots. And it was because I wanted that experience. And so it was, it was fueled by desire. So I went in to see my teacher, who was Joseph Goldstein at that time, and I told him, Joseph, I lost it, but I'm trying really hard to get back, but I just can't get there. It's so frustrating. And he just stopped and he said, Guy, this practice is not for us. It's for the other. And that just totally cut through the holding. I got it. I've got to care about the other person. Not self-centeredly care about my experience right now. I've got to develop the caring for the other person because that's the whole engine of this practice. When we sincerely care about the other person, all the fruits come. But if we try to grab a hold of it and control the metta to make some immediate result, then it becomes self-centered and it doesn't work. So this is a really great lesson on right effort. We have to go back to the um, kind of simplest, most innocent intention, which is just to care for the person, ourself or another. And if that's there, everything else comes. But if we try to force it, that puts too much pressure on the heart. So one of the things we have to learn about the heart's responses is the heart doesn't respond well to pressure. It doesn't respond well to forcing. It doesn't respond well to the mind telling it what it should be feeling. What it responds well to is a relaxed place of listening. So this, again, is where the insight and the understanding become so important. If we settle back and just want to learn how the heart works, it will tell us. It will show us. But we have to go into that receptive, open, curious, innocent place in order to do it. Then it will reveal everything to us. But if we put too much pressure, it'll close down. It gets very shy and it won't, it won't open um, nicely. So these are some of the areas of attachment and desire that come in in the metta practice. That's the near enemy. The far enemy of ill will or aversion also comes up a lot in doing the metta practice. Um, it is the opposite of metta. In the Abhidhamma, when they list the, the manual of Buddhist psychology, when they list the 52 states of mind that human beings are capable of, they don't include metta by name. The word they use for it, the Pali word is adosa. A means not, and dosa means uh, hatred or aversion. 
So they point to metta by describing it as the absence of aversion. So the absence of aversion or ill will shows that the the mind is ready to move into metta. So we see that when uh, the near enemy and the far enemy are both absent, metta is possible. And when metta is strong, it prevents both desire and aversion from coming up as reactions. It blocks desire because metta is inherently happy and satisfied. So there's no need for anything else. And it blocks aversion because it's so loving, it opens with um, affection to our experience. But aversion does come in in doing metta practice. It's an important part. One of the ways it comes in is in regards to ourself. We start to send metta to ourself and we remember all the different ways that we've um, uh, failed ourselves or we've fallen short of our expectations for ourselves or things that we've done that are unskillful, ways we've hurt people, ways we've hurt ourselves, that whole ground that the forgiveness practice really helps to, uh, to clear up. And it can bring a lot of self-judgment, a lot of feeling that we're um, not worthy or not lovable or not adequate. This is diluted. I mean, it was really beautiful. The Dalai Lama came to the meditation center in Massachusetts early on, and someone raised their hand and asked him a question and said, I feel that I'm not lovable. How can I work with this? And the Dalai Lama, it sounded, seemed kind of uncharacteristic, just said very, very strongly, you're wrong. And he was pointing out every human being is worth loving, is worthy of love, because our basic nature is beautiful. Our basic nature has openness and compassion and love within it. We need to recognize those, those good qualities. But a lot of us in the West have this uh, element of doubting ourselves, of judging ourselves, of not feeling so good about ourselves. I had just ordained as a monk uh, in Thailand, and I was going up to practice in a forest monastery north of Chiang Mai. And my preceptor said, well, look, on your way, I want you to stop in this monastery in Chiang Mai. It's my branch monastery. There's another Western monk there whom I respect. I want you to get to know him a little bit before you go off on your own. So I traveled up to Chiang Mai, and I went to this branch monastery, and there was a Western monk there who'd been in robes for about 15 years. And I'd been in robes for about three weeks at that point. So I was very eager to learn. And the first morning that I was there, he took me out on his alms round. You probably know that the way monks in Thailand are fed is they take a bowl and they walk down the street and the lay people come out and put food in the bowl and that becomes the monk's uh, main meal for the day. So I was going out on alms round with him early in the morning. It was probably about uh, 6.30 And the first thing I noticed was the size of his bowl. Because, I mean, it was not much smaller than this bell here. It was the biggest alms bowl I had ever seen. And I must say, he himself looked pretty well fed. So I thought, this will be interesting. So he went out in front as a senior monk. I walked behind him. And then these two novices came behind us. The novices are the junior monks. They're usually under the age of 20. And I thought, this is odd. I don't know why these junior monks, the novices, are coming because they don't usually go on alms round. Okay, 
I'm just here to learn. So we started going down the street, and this guy knew half the town of Chiang Mai because everywhere we went, people were lining up to offer him food. And I found out that he spoke fluent Thai, he meditated in silence in the morning, and then in the afternoon he received visitors. So parents would come and see him and children would come and see him and they'd ask advice about their meditation practice and about their family life and about their business. He was like a pastor to the community. He was very giving, very warm, very uh, loving, very accepting. So on this alms round I saw he was clearly loved by these people because within a couple of minutes both our bowls were completely full. I thought, well, we'll go back to the monastery now. But we didn't. We ducked down in an alley, and then I saw why the novices were there. They opened up their robes, and they each had a plastic bag hanging off each shoulder. So we took the food from our bowls and put it in their plastic bags until our bowls were empty. The novices covered up, and we went back down the street with our bowls empty. So they got filled again. And we went into another alley, and we did that again. And so we went out on the street again. We filled up our bowls three times. And then we went back to the monastery. So the, everybody ate well that day. Based on basically his loving kindness, we fed ourselves, a bunch of other monks, the junior monks, the nuns, and even the temple dogs based on the food that we brought back. So I, I really enjoyed hanging out with him. And as we spent time together over those couple of days, I just remarked on how well-liked he was, what metta there was with him in the community. And he told me it wasn't always like this. He said, I spent the first nine years that I was in robes working through my self-hatred. He said, because I had a lot of it when I came in. But I worked with Vipassana, I worked with metta, and it really changed my heart and my mind. And it was so apparent because he was a being who emanated a lot of metta and he received a lot of metta in return. This is a common reaction as we start to meditate, as we direct metta to ourselves, the sense of self-judgment and inadequacy. But metta is a very good medicine for it. The Buddha said that medicine, oh, sorry, that metta is the antidote to aversion. So particularly aversion towards self, metta is a really strong medicine. So we can work with this here in a number of ways, reflecting on our good qualities, good intentions, and good deeds is really a powerful way to get that confidence in our own good nature. We say that our basic nature in Buddhism is basically good. This is what's pointed to by the word Buddha nature. So we trust in that. It's an important part of the way we, we see things. So we start to get more conviction in that by reflecting on our good qualities and our good actions. One of the good actions that you can reflect on is all the Dharma practice you've done. You know, this is not easy. I know this is not easy, being here, generating the intentions for loving kindness and sitting hour after hour. And the fact that you're willing to do it as a discipline day after day is a very strong testament to your paramis, to your courage and your determination, your loving kindness, your equanimity, and so forth. So just being here is a lot of very powerful 
uh, action. Another thing that's very helpful is to remember yourself as a child at a young age when you can just really get in touch with your innocence and purity and good-heartedness. Send metta to yourself as a girl or a boy of four or five or seven or eleven and feel that childhood innocence that is still there in all of us, part of our makeup. You might reflect on times that you felt loved and who the people are who you feel love you. And a powerful and beautiful way to do the metta for self is to really take on the role of receiving it. You know, when we send metta to ourselves, we're both the sender and the receiver. And generally, we're a little easier being the sender. So sometimes it's helpful to just be the receiver. And a nice way to do that is imagine yourself sitting down and a half circle of your best friends and benefactors in front of you saying the phrases toward you. So all you have to do is sit there and receive their love, receive their metta. Also, having the benefactor is very helpful because we can open the heart to loving-kindness through a a benefactor that we care about. And that gives us that conviction, oh, metta is alive in me. Metta is there in me in in this moment. And when we feel the metta alive, we don't have any doubt about our goodness. Because our, within us, it's filled with that good quality, with that good state, with that beautiful experience. So this is a little bit the pointer to that, that poem you've probably heard by Galway Canal called St. Francis and the Sow, where he says, Sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. This is what we're doing with the metta for self. We're teaching ourselves again our own loveliness so that we can have faith in that and flower from that. So often this reaction of aversion or ill will is directed to somebody else, the form of anger, sometimes in the form of fear. And it's not at all uncommon to be practicing loving-kindness and have a lot of anger towards someone else. This happened to me in another long metta retreat that I was doing, where just by happenstance, my difficult person was also sitting the retreat. And this is someone I'd had a lot of disagreements and conflicts with over the past year. And they had hurt one of my friends in a way I felt was, was really unfair So we would sometimes cross paths in the course of the retreat, and I'd be doing, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful. You know, I'd go back to my room, and I'd sit down, and I'd start thinking about this person and all the interactions of the last year, and I'd start getting really upset. I'd get really angry going over that old territory again. And I could spin out for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, getting angry, not being able to really bring the mind back into metta. And I don't know if you've experienced it, but when you get angry in a sensitive place, when you're in a sensitive place on retreat, it's really painful. When the body has been open and the energy is is very alive and you're feeling very sensitive, anger just draws that all up into this strong contraction that just feels terrible. So I was getting kind of crushed by the anger I was feeling and I just didn't want to do it anymore. 
So I, I was desperate to find a way out. You know, I had been kind of indulging in letting it, letting it go a bit, but I became really committed to finding a way through it. So I started looking at it, and I saw that a piece of anger was in this word ill will. And you know, goodwill is when we want someone to feel good. But ill will, as a part of anger, is when we want someone to not feel good. And I realized that part of my anger was wanting this other person not to feel good. And then I saw that that was just a step away from cruelty. And cruelty, in the Buddhist sense, is when someone is suffering, we enjoy their suffering. That's the definition of cruelty. So I saw that I was just a step away from, be, from being cruel toward this person. And I could accept the sense of myself as an angry person, but I couldn't accept the sense of myself as being a cruel person. And yet I saw I was so close to that. And so I just decided I had to give it up. So I'd heard that one could practice metta for one's difficult person. I'd heard that. And I thought, that's too hokey. You know, I don't even want to like this person, so I don't want to practice metta for them. But I was desperate. So I tried it, and it worked. I found that I actually could generate a sincere wish for them to feel well, and that transformed the ill will into goodwill. And as soon as I could make that move, the anger started to just fade away. So this was a powerful lesson for me. Number one, not to indulge in anger, but to be really um, respectful of its power for damage, first to ourself. Of course, I wasn't able to express it, thankfully. But then if we express it, you know, the damage that it can inflict on another and on relationships. So I developed a, a real respect for its power And I put a lot of care into working with metta as the way to undo the ill will. So I just offer that. In a few days, we'll work on that directly with a difficult person. But it was an important part of uh, the learning for me. So the other way that aversion tends to go is to fear. You know, if we don't like what the world is presenting, either we'll push it away, which is kind of the response of anger, or we're afraid of it and we withdraw from it. So a few years ago, a woman was practicing metta in a retreat here. And by the way, if you like a week of metta, you would love a month of metta. (laughs) And every February, a few of us here teach the month-long retreat, and there are always a few people who come and do metta for that month while other people are doing vipassana. So I just want to let you know that's an option if you want to do an extended period of metta. So a woman was here in February doing a month of metta, and in the middle of the retreat, she received a phone message that a relative had died. And she had to leave the retreat to go to the funeral. It wasn't a super close relative, so she wasn't you know, terribly um, distraught, but she had to leave the retreat. And she was in an open and sensitive place. So she said, I'm, I'm really nervous about going uh, traveling, and especially through the airport, because airports are so chaotic. The lines and the bustle and the security checks and the pat-downs, and you don't know if you're going to miss the plane because it all takes so long, and there's jostling at the counter. 
said, I really feel nervous about going into the airport. What should I do? Should I go back to Vipassana? And I said, no, continue to do the loving kindness. Send loving kindness to all the people who are around you at the airport. Remember Sally told the story of the original origin of loving kindness being how the Buddha taught the monks not to be afraid of the tree spirits? So it's the same principle. If you're in a situation where you might be afraid, try doing loving kindness to all the people around. So that's what she did. She went through the airport and the the check-in agents and the security agents and all the other passengers and flight attendants boarding the plane and the passengers on the plane. And she said, as long as I could stay in that state of metta toward them, I didn't have any fear or anxiety. So it really is a powerful protection against fear. And so if fear arises, again, I encourage you to go to metta. And again, that's where it's great to have this ally of a benefactor, where you feel their very presence can, can fill you with some strength and a sense of refuge and a sense of connection. So I'll talk, um, I think, tomorrow morning the instructions about more detailed ways to work with these near and far enemies when we come. Basically, you can continue to work with loving kindness. You can change to a compassion phrase, which I'll mention briefly. We'll do a guided meditation on compassion tomorrow afternoon. Or you can switch to Vipassana for a while and just be with the emotions in a mindful way. These are three strategies and ways of of relating to them. But as we start to um, develop this relational practice of the Brahma-viharas, we start to feel more and more connected to the life of human beings, the life of creatures, all sentient life. And we start to appreciate this um, verse from Shantideva from the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And we'll let this be the closing for this evening. Whatever joy there is in this world, all comes from wanting others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world, all comes from wanting only myself to be happy. So let's just sit together for a minute, please. Whatever joy there is in this world, all comes from wanting others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world, all comes from wanting only myself to be happy. So thank you for your attention. We have about uh, 30 minutes for walking meditation. Then we'll have the final sitting with some chanting. And again, it'll be a little... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.